Welcome back to the Darkest Hour podcast. We are continuing our thorough and loving autopsy of Halloween 5, The Revenge of Michael Myers. Of course, we all know this is the 1989 slasher film directed and co-written by Dominique Othenin Gerard, and uh, it's uh, it's it's a beauty, folks. Um, it's definitely prompted a lot of uh, interesting conversation so far, and we're looking forward to um, picking up where we left off. Even though none of us really remember four weeks ago or whenever we uh, recorded the first part of the show, exactly what we talked about. John, you're shattering the illusion, man. <laughs> that would be Michael T. Kuchek, of course, speaking there, and Vikram Wheat is our, my other co-host, and I, of course, am John Evans, and we are the uh, we are doing our season this year is called Every Night is Halloween, and we're looking at every Halloween film, all of them, folks, even the bad ones, and fortunately, we haven't had too many of those that we've been a little surprised at how much we've enjoyed some of these middle films and i think that uh, that conversation will continue here so guys we left off in this film where uh loomis uh played by of course the great donald pleasance is snarling at a nine-year-old girl uh jamie that michael has dug up the coffin of a nine-year-old girl and he goes what do you think he's going to do with that <laughs> God, my, my Loomis impression it's 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 spot on, but it's it a uh, it's a fantastic line, and uh, we uh, yeah we're at this point where all he can do is yell at her because he can't get what he needs out of her. He's trying to get something helpful. I guess he kind of knows that she can see through his eyes in some way. He calls it a power that Michael has over Jamie instead of the other way around. And, uh, yeah, um, do you guys have any thoughts on this scene that uh, you don't remember covering the last time? <laughs> well, Taylor, I got, I got, I got two thoughts. Uh, the, the first is uh, that you were like, you know, now, like, like now all he can do is yell at her as though he's been so effectual for the last <laughs> you know, four Halloween movies. But now he's re- old man reduced to yelling at a little girl. Uh, uh, Good point. You know, I, I, I actually feel like yelling at her is kind of a step up. Like, I feel like he's actually contributing something now. Um, he's not half-assing it. Exactly. Yeah. He's not, yeah. He's not just sending her to the school to die. What are you guys drinking? I am drinking beer. Um, I was, of course, (laughs) (laughs) well, it's not always beer. (laughs) Beer. Beer. Yeah. At the moment I am just killing the last of the Remix IPA, which is a Green Flash special. It's very hoppy and fresh IPA. And on deck, like ready to go, is the uh, New Belgium Voodoo Ranger IPA. I am an IPA guy. I see. Huh. You can keep that IPA. Uh, I'm drinking a Guinness Blind. I want to change it up from the usual Guinness. I, much as I love, my goodness, my Guinness, uh, I you know, I've had the blonde on uh, several occasions, so I was just kind of in the mood for it. Uh, I was watching a movie yesterday that had a lot of beer drinking in it, and for whatever reason, I was like, I have to go drink some beer now, too. And uh, as if I didn't drink enough this past weekend. But, yeah, I, I've been fucking swallowing a lot more beer than usual lately because, uh, you know, I guess that's just kind of guy I am. Do you so, remember what was... movie you're you're referencing there? 
I don't. Was it Drinking Buddies? <laughs> no. Mm, I no. forgot. At least the advertising uh, worked. <laughs> like You don't remember the product, yeah. but you're like, oh, yeah. I want beer. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Kurosawa's ran. With uh, <laughs> you know, all the, all the, all the Bud Light uh, product placement, I mean, there is something to that, though. It's impossible to watch something like, say, Big Night, and watch them create that that amazing meal in the climax, and not be like, "Oh, dude, that looks fucking good, man! Holy fuck, break me off yeah. some of that," you know? I know. Every time well, I watch a Halloween movie, I just I go and murder some teenagers. <laughs> well, for instance, uh, over the weekend I went to uh, Danny Trejo's donuts shop, and I got the the machete donut. It's a donut uh, in the shape of a machete that has uh, red icing on top of it to indicate that someone has been murdered by this machete donut. And uh, I'm I'm actually not really a big donut guy. I can't even tell you the last time that I ate a donut, especially just for breakfast. You know, if you told me that Danny Trejo was in a Halloween movie, or actually that was just like a trivia question, like is he or is he not? I would I would probably say yes. I just we haven't run into him yet. Like yeah, one of yeah. these sequels, or at least the Rob Zombie movies. Right, I would definitely peg him for showing up in a Rob Zombie film because Rob loves to. Uh, stuff as many, you know, of the, you know, the big names and, and classic faces from the genre. Actually, and, and I'm remembering that he is, uh, like at the asylum or something that he's an employee. Mm. And... Right, guys, I'm going to, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop this conversation because, uh, much to my personal embarrassment, mm. uh, I covered the red carpet of the 2007 Scream Awards. Uh, for a website that I was writing for, but I did it on camera. Uh, and among the many things I did while covering that red carpet was interview Danny Trejo about wow. his role in uh, in uh, the Rob Zombie Halloween. That's a story I want to save for the Rob Zombie Halloween. So okay. <laughs> All right. Well, folks, that's what they call in the industry a teaser. <laughs> that's a yeah. Teaser. Yes. Come back. So come back in six months, <laughs> and there will be uh, there. You can hear the rest of the story about that time that I talked to Dan- Danny Trejo for forty-five seconds. Well, uh, I can't wait to talk about when I heard Michael Medved eating an apple in the screening of yeah. Halloween H two O that I was at. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of uh, food and movies, and circling back around to Halloween Five. I've got the movie queued up in front of me, and it's uh, locked actually on the scene in which uh, Michael is in Mikey's muscle car, and he's hassling our kind of ersatz protagonist, kind of sort of protagonist girl. Uh, I forgot the character's name, but Tina. Tina. Okay, So, so Michael and Tina are in the car, and... The little girl, Jamie, is having a psychic episode, and she's flashing on the location of where they're at, and her friend Tina is in trouble, and the primary image that she's able to relay to the characters around her is that it's Giant. Uh, It's a place called Giant, and it's it's, it's a, a convenience store, and the logo of the giant convenience store is a blonde woman with giant cookies over her tits. So looking at the scene again, I have the 
odd urge for both cookies and tits. So again, the power of advertising in action. It does come all the way around. Mike, I wasn't sure. I thought maybe this was a shaggy dog story, but there no. it is. And you no. wonder how advertising pays my bills. If you thought we were going to get through this whole podcast without me talking about the cookie woman, like you would be mistaken. <laughs> the, cookie, the, the giant cookie woman is definitely on the docket. Yes. We're going to get to it. After the, the, the scene with uh, Jamie being berated by uh, Dr. Loomis about this coffin – um, he goes to the Loomis house, which um, looks very different from the Loomis house that we've seen in previous films. The Myers house, not the Loomis house. I am terribly sorry. Gosh. I, shudder to, I shudder to think of what the Loomis house looks like. I feel like <laughs> he, lives in, he lives in a widow's garage. It looks like Robert De Niro's house in uh, Heat. Like There's just a table and chair in the middle of an otherwise empty room. <laughs> There is something on YouTube like that show takes us inside Loomis's house, and I don't know if it's deleted from the next movie or what, but I just saw a scene of Loomis in his house on the internet. I think Loomis shares a basement apartment with a snowboarder named Sean. <laughs> He's got Brad Pitt from True Romance on his couch with that honey bear. Guys, I'm going to say that's a fucking that's a fucking sitcom. Okay, we could sell that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm telling you, he's pure evil. All right, dude, I get it. All right, I gotta go shred some tasty pumps. Do you have any papers, man? Yes, I do. I, I get go that he's shred- evil on two legs, man. He's like not like a quadruped. He's not like an evil dog or something. I totally yeah. get it. Dude, I get it, but it's December, and I've got some tasty powder to shred, bro. <laughs> You're harsh in my mellow. The mystery man, by the way, we skipped uh, a little bit. I think we talked about him, but the, one of the points that um, the director's commentary, which is what I watched today, made is that you know when he kicks the dog that we're supposed to hate him, and he does kick a dog as he gets off of a, a bus like a greyhound to arrive here. What kind of a badass with steel-toed boots takes a greyhound um, to get to you know, his mission site, but whatever. I, I, I think that that is shorthand for criminal or demon because a car necessitates a certain level of accountability, mm-hmm. a license, registration, insurance, all the things that you would have to dick around with if you got pulled over in said car. Whereas, you know, for instance, demon nights, it, it's shorthand for guy staying off the grid a la Jack Reacher. Well, we see him smoking later, so I'm going to go with, even oh. though I'm sure demons smoke, but I'm going to probably go with the, he's just a, a, a scumbag uh, theory. Criminal and or supernatural entity who doesn't care about his health because he's immortal. <laughs> <laughs> so Loomis uh, pokes around this house, which I learned uh, was not dressed, the Myers house um, was not dressed by the art direction team. They found it this way. And I will say to this movie's credit, they use a lot of locations. Uh, it, it doesn't. It very seldom, if at all, feels like it's a set or, you know, they really do a good job of finding good locations and lighting them uh, as naturally as possible. Yeah, I agree with that. I, if I had a quibble with four, it was how constrained the house feels that they end up in. Uh, even though it's a large house, multiple layers, la la la, it did feel a little claustrophobic, a little limited. And, uh, you know, especially because, you know, for decades literally 
the one thing I remembered about that entire movie was walking up and down those fucking stairs. So <laughs> yeah, it, 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 you know, five, we actually have multiple houses, multiple locations. They're interesting locations. So yeah, uh, we, we definitely have a, a very distinct uptick in production value. Yeah. One of the things that I, I like about this scene particularly uh, so much uh, of course, it does establish the laundry chute, which is going to be one of the better set pieces for Jamie later on. But it's that we get a jump scare with a dead rat, and Loomis's reaction kills me. Like, he laughs. And it's he's deranged, in a sense, but it's in this weirdly healthy way. And that this kind of absurd stressor of a dead rat um, falling on him, uh, his coping mechanism is to laugh at it and i just i love that you know what donald pleasance brings to the table we've talked a lot about him and his performance and everything else he's really created an arc i think specifically across four and five because i think we all agree kind of phoning it in on in two whatever but there's a there's you can see that he wants to create the impression that Loomis is a little bit unhinged in this movie, that he's actually finally starting to lose his mind from chasing Michael Myers across all of these years and all this kind of stuff. And it's, so it's, it's almost more interesting to see somebody craft a character across all these years and start to see it really pay off in this. And I think, again, we're going to get to some of where he goes with it uh, especially sort of in the last act of the of the film, which I think is really where it starts to pay off. But I, I genuinely believe that I think he was planting seeds in four that are starting to come to fruition here. And that's where you see him, like you said, he's a little nuts. He's a little weird in all these scenes uh, in the way that he, that he uh, berates Jamie and all that kind of stuff. Like, you really get the sense that he, he wants to keep himself entertained. He's trying to find interesting things to do with this character. And yeah. after going through this experience like and being slapped in the face time and time again with the fact that this guy cannot possibly be human, like that there must be something uncanny about him, it would drive any man of science a little nuts, wouldn't it? Yeah. Especially because he had him in a little room for 15 years. And it's got to be disconcerting to imagine that you watch for 15 years this this boy grow into a man. And only after he escapes to realize that he didn't grow into a man. He grew into, uh, you know, we, we've had lengthy conversations about exactly what Michael is. But we do know that's supernatural. There, There is a Lovecraftian element to it. It is, uh, I, I think that there's an entire movie to be had for uh you know the 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 journals of dr loomis during those years uh you, you know I, gee you know i oh, could yeah. i could pitch an entire series about all the kooky characters loomis has uh taken care of over the years but well, none, I, none of them are in his league michael's league you know yo that's uh, it, yeah michael would be like the ticking time bomb going on in the background it would uh, you know and in in the foreground we would give him more minor kooky characters. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think too, he's carrying the guilt of all of Michael's victims. Mm. And you, you really yeah. set in him that that is, that is finally starting to really tear at him. I mean, it's, I, this is the, the, maybe the, the strangest comparison that I could come up with, but uh, you know, I've been 
giving a lot of my old comic books to uh, my my kids, my my oldest mm-hmm. son. Mm-hmm. And what what I have is there's a comic book in which Professor Xavier finally loses his shit on Magneto and basically like just blasts his his brain out of his skull because it's just been too it's been too long. It's been too many bodies. It's been too much violence. There's there's too many victims and he just kind of can't take it anymore. Uh, and I feel that's where we're starting to get to with Loomis is it's just. Yeah. Too long, I, too much blood, and too many dead teenagers. Huh? I, I thought you were going for Dark Knight uh, Returns, where I'm a, uh, I'm, a, I, uh, I'm a Marvel guy. You fucking. Oh, <laughs> I, I'm I, I'm 99% uh, Marvel guy, except for the the key books of you know, Doom Patrol, Batman, basically the darker and the weirder stuff that they've done. And uh, yeah, there, there's a definite element of uh, Dark Knight Returns, where you know he hunts down the Joker, and the Joker is like, "You're basically responsible for everybody that I've ever killed, because you've never truly, you, you've never had the courage to kill me. Uh, you can never stop me. You, you, you put me away, and I'll get out and I'll kill more people. You know, all this blood is on your hands, and I, I can definitely see how there's a you know direct connection to be ha- made with uh, Luminous and Michael. Yeah." Of course his experience would crack his psyche. But I would argue that this is the movie where Loomis really plays other cards with Michael. Yes, of course, at the very end, like we see his his rage and his um, desire, even though it's not even clear, maybe even to him, whether or not he's trying to uh, kill Michael or just knock him unconscious. He's got a tranquilizer gun, for God's sake. But you see that that naked rage finally exposed. But through much of this film, he's absolutely playing the card. I am a healer, and I can help you. And he's pretty damn convincing when he's talking mm-hmm. to Michael in that way in this film. Yeah, but he he also sounds a little crazy when he does it. Oh too. yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think your point about him being crazy is very much true. But at the same time, there's also a sense of doom. For Loomis by this point. And I, I think that, as you said, like these two films are very much, and I think we touched on this in, in our, you know, recent podcast, these two are like a, it's not a trilogy, but it's, you know, whatever you call a two part story. Like this is yeah. very much a cohesive story. These two films. And, and a lot more cohesive than the Halloween one and two, I would say, even mm-hmm. though uh, two plays a card of uh, beginning, directly after the ending credits of the first one. But uh, yeah, there's a lot of shit. I would say that Loomis is far more impactful to the plot of two, but there, he also does. He's a lot impactful of to shit. Ben Tramer. Yeah. <laughs> 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 there's a real impact there. <laughs> yeah. 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 Sorry. I do just want to say before we get too far away from it and it's I, maybe this is just a product of our current popular culture, but I think that there is something interesting to be teased out of the, the superhero mythology in that if you think about it, Loomis is the, he's the superhero. He's the Batman. He's the, the Superman. He's the professor Xavier, except he has no powers. He doesn't have Batman's money. He doesn't have any of those things. And yet he is fighting a supervillain. Well, uh, I, I yes. think that the the more direct comparison is Ahab that uh, was made in uh, Rise of Leslie Vernon 
I, I don't agree with the idea of just kind of creating this kind of stock stereotype, stereotypical character like that movie tries to do. But I think that there is a, you know, you can definitely put an underline on under the idea that Loomis is an Ahab-ish type character because, like you said, he doesn't have any actual powers. You know, Ahab is just a guy. What Rise of Leslie DeBernan does is kind of underlines the idea of an Ahab-type character. And I don't agree with that film's idea of trying to craft an entire class of uh, recurring characters to slasher movies as a whole, but I think that it's very much on point in terms of drawing the direct comparison between Loomis and Ahab, because both of them are basically just broken down men. Uh, the only powers, quote unquote, that they have are A, they have a bunch of dudes who will help them out. Loomis has various police departments, <laughs> and Ahab has his crew, and they have uh, a, a bitter deep knowledge of the quarry for which they hunt. And in the case of, you know, and it's interesting that, you know, uh, you know, Moby Dick obviously is the white whale and uh, uh, the shape is a guy with a completely white face. I don't, I, I think for one fucking second that Deborah Hill and John Carpenter were thinking along those lines when they were crafting this in the first one, but I would be stunned if, Nobody in the entire course of the series started making these connections at any time in the course of making the franchise. No, 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 wait. I'm going to say this. Fuck you, all right? <laughs> I, come in, I come in with a comic book reference, and you're going to come back at me with Victor Hugo? I, I'm just going to uh, get Melville. my Melville. Jesus Christ, you can't even get the literature right. Like, you're just... Fuck you, motherfucker! Me, by the way, you. listeners, right. oh, I'm Vic, go to school. Jesus, Melville, whatever. Mike, Vic, go to Mike, school. Read Mike a book. does not Read have book, an Vic. MFA, by the way. Mike does not have an MFA. I know you think he does after that point, but no, he doesn't. Yeah, yeah. Books are for losers. Yeah, instead of an eighty thousand dollar piece of toilet paper, I just read books. <laughs> All right, I just killed my first beer. Let's let's proceed. So, <laughs> <laughs> Michael, right, so, uh, <laughs> Michael is monitoring the greaser with John Lennon sunglasses, and he's got this car, this like badass Camaro. And I was listening to some commentary today before we uh, recorded, and the actor who played Michael, Don Shanks, just slips in this little anecdote that was kind of mind blowing in a way. He says that. When he was driving the car, uh, he, Michael, the character, drives the car a lot, so the actor drives the car a lot in the movie. He said there was something kind of that, that creeped him out, or he just felt a little weird. He's not very specific, but he says like he just noticed something being off about the car. Years after making the movie, he was talking to somebody in the transportation department, and they said that how they came by this black Camaro was that two weeks before they began shooting, the family who sold this car lost their, I guess, daughter uh, when she committed suicide in the car. And so they're like, let's sell this car. So that is a weird little, yeah. weird little footnote. Yeah, especially in a horror movie. Uh, mm -hmm. I mean, dude, I, I've told both of you guys a story of how my mom rang the doorbell after she passed away. So, yeah, I... I, I Sincerely, you know, I, I'm not going to get fucking wiggy about this shit, but I sincerely believe that 
you know, when you pass a certain energy kind of hangs around for a little bit. So yeah, I mean, I she actually it. died in this car. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I, I, you know, it's been my observation that that energy that, that is really, it hangs on to, uh, electrically powered devices, including, a you know, I mean, even a car is still as a starter, still as an electrical system. So I, I, you know, it's, it's weird, but I totally buy that he would feel something and then that something is real to some degree. Have you ever burned toast, Danny? <laughs> Just pictures in a book. Okay. And my, <laughs> my other thought here is that when uh, the character who is uh, Sammy's boyfriend comes running out here and he does this very flamboyant little dance, uh, I was just <laughs> kind of thinking... Hey. Where are we here? Uh, we're we're at the little grocery store kind of a thing with the car and uh, Tina and Sammy, who's um, Tina's uh, friend, who's planning on giving up her virginity tonight. To uh, right, okay, all right, gotcha. Yeah, this this yeah. this this fellow teenager who um, is a he's a very uh, playful guy and um, he has kind of a cackle. I would say, and he's a, he's a colorful character, but I just, I'll just say I didn't entirely buy him as a typical hardcore heterosexual teenage boy. (laughs) I didn't exactly find that read. Uh, I, the register that I had with him was that he is, like a, a still evolutionarily developing version of Seymour, Philip Seymour Hoffman, where hmm. you know he's not quite a man. He's he's like piltdown man version of Philip Seymour Hoffman. Like he's he's within the same genus. Piltdown <laughs> uh, man. There, there you go. Mike's education is really showing up uh, today. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just <laughs> you guys wouldn't find it so unusual if you didn't just watch football all day. <laughs> uh, <laughs> what are you talking about books and shit for, coach? <laughs> fucking science and shit fucking burst down, bro. Yeah, it feels like this guy is like within the same genus of like uh, an early C- Philip Seymour Hoffman or Jesse Plemons. You know, that kind of just kind of somewhat uh, doughy white guy, but also like weirdly intense kind of a dude. Uh, I, I found that like his, his kind of goofy, cackly type thing is almost forced in a way. Uh, I, I think that he's putting on a little show for the girls and also for the like clearly stronger male in his presence. Uh, but I don't know. He, he seems more stolid. Like, I mean, if the two of those guys got in a fight, I would definitely give it to him. What? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Because he's got that kind of, you know, solid, you know, solid guy who works in a grocery store and picks up uh, cases of beer all day. Whereas the other guy is like skinny, polishes his car all day guy. Uh, I will say that I, between the two of those characters, I would give it to Mikey in terms of the ca- how much the camera enjoys those characters because the camera really likes him. Um when he shows up and the girl runs out and gives him a kiss, we get this really neat kind of, you know, top down, you know, the, the camera kind of jibs up and then does a top down shot on the two of them. And then we have like these kind of cool little kind of following tracking, 
uh, shots where he's polishing the car and everything else. Like, I don't know. Cameron just likes his character. I don't know why, but they, you know, the, they do. The character reminded me of Chainsaw from uh, Summer School. <laughs> that, was, that was really my connection. It took me a minute. It wasn't until I was listening to you guys talk, and I was like, I've had this weird the thing where I'm watching it, and I had this weird association. I can't quite place it and then you guys were talking and then i was like oh that's it like boom and then now i'm on imdb looking at dean cameron's career and i'm glad that he's still working so i'll tell you what summer school had a weirdly solid impression on me because of those two guys yeah in the summer school because they were like super hardcore horror uh aficionados and uh, my, uh, you know friend of mine and i like identified with those two guys so thoroughly uh they were just like Okay, that's us. Dude, that was probably yeah. a top five movie for me that year. Like, I loved yeah. that movie. Oh, yeah. Sure. Yeah. It was It was one of the first, because remember, way back in the day, uh, if you have characters who were into, like, horror movies and stuff like that, they were treated like fucking weirdos. Like, uh, you remember the kid in Salem's Lot, where the fact that he liked Dracula movies was, like, this bizarre thing that his dad just couldn't get his head around. I they treated him like it was a fucking brony, dude. But uh, <laughs> you My know, this is a brony, and I won't have you speak ill of it. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a, but when you go see summer school, and it's like those two guys—they're funny, they're laid back, they do cool shit, they freak everybody out with their stuff, but it's all in good fun. You know, I mean, as a comic duo, they were up with uh, Bill and Ted for me, and how and and back back in high school, so. Yeah, dude, I was I was a big fan of those guys. Chainsaw and who was the other one? Oh, shucks, I don't, I don't know who the other guy was. But I'm gonna say the other guy. This is the other thing that again, like this has been this has been tickling my brain since I watched this movie the first time. The other guy he reminds me of is Trey Parker from uh, of South Park. Right, right, right. That's right. I see Spitz. That's kind of who I find myself thinking of. I don't know. Mm-hmm. That's fine. Now I, I, I can imagine, you know, of the, the, you know, we have hundreds of thousands of people tune into this podcast. I, I can imagine them chomping at the bit. Guys, get back to Halloween Five. Enough Sorry. of your personal stories. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> no apologies to be had. Hey, don't we worry, guys. We will We're do a summer school podcast. I, I yeah. promise. <laughs> <laughs> it's always summer in summer school Wait, this year. You know what? I will say this, just to bring it back around. The other thing that I really like about Spitz, he is very committed to his Michael Myers character. When he puts on the costume and puts on the mask, like the cops have their guns leveled at him. Mm -hmm. He's still playing the part. Yeah, but that's because of all the theater experience that he has. Summer theater camps. Summer yeah. stock production of Guys and Dolls really yeah, prepared yeah. him for that role. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's so, all right. So, can we? Are we? Are we ready? Are we going to get to the the great uh, uh, outdoor party scene? Or is there? Is uh, there we anything are getting there? We are definitely getting there. But well, there's an indoor party first that we might want to touch on. Any thoughts on this weird Halloween uh, pageant contest? thing where Jamie attends with her um, incredible actor who plays her her little boyfriend uh, and I'm being entirely sarcastic there. You're but, being mean to a small child as usual. Yeah, I, mean, <laughs> I, I can't wait for you to have 
procreation abilities, and then you're going to just be mean to children all day. My kid's going to be a Haley Joel Osment for sure. I literally, <laughs> I literally have a note here that says kid stuff really works. I what? actually think the relationship between Jamie and uh, uh, Stuttering John is <laughs> strong. Oh, my God. You guys are killing me. I mean, I, I'm saying this swishy guy is X, Y, and Z, and you're telling me he's like this solid sort of badass guy, and I'm criticizing this kid who I, I feel has serious you know, learning disabilities, the character, not necessarily the actor. And (laughs) (laughs) you're totally saying that he's like, like the, 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 the Macaulay Culkin of Halloween five. (laughs) Well, I I think this is is the podcast we get pilloried for. (laughs) I think that the idea is that he is a fellow enrollee in this, uh, you know, institute, this school, this, weird program that they've got Jamie in uh, because you know, mm-hmm. she, she's mute. She's been struck mute. And it's funny because I have watched the making of four, five and six and Daniel Harris talks about how even as a little girl, as, as a child actor, she had no idea why her character was mute and just kind of went with it. And mm-hmm. she sells it pretty well. Uh, I will say that I think that they had a massively missed Opportunity and this circles around to one of my earlier points is they're having this kind of official Halloween party. You'll notice that in this movie we have two Halloween parties. One of them is the official Halloween party where you have kids, you have dry ice, you have cheap decorations, you have bobbing for apples, you have candy, you have punch, and there's an unofficial party out in a barn where people have sex and they do drugs and who, where does Michael Myers go to murder people? The latter. Exactly. But here at the official one, Jamie has one of her psychic moments and she's desperately trying to tell everybody what she is seeing through her psychic moment eyes. And she should have raspily squeaked out cookie boobs cookie boobs but she doesn't well she She works her way to cookie woman and and that's the one role that the little boyfriend actually plays in terms of advancing the story is that he translates for jamie and he's the one who says cookie woman like in a more um uh, articulate manner Uh, and that's what clues in the, the the critical intel necessary to send all the police to the the location and uh, saves Tina. I'm going to say that said, I have questions about the officer who based on cookie woman is able to identify the right gas station. (laughs) Right. Yeah. What are you doing? What are you doing outside the gas station, buddy? Like why are you so familiar with that? Well, I mean, Hey man, you know, even cops got a code seven. They, they got to get their coffee and donuts from somewhere, man. It might as well be from cookie boobs. So I think if I was a cop spending a lot of time sitting in parking lots, I, I might notice the, the the colorful mural of the giant cookie boobed figure uh, yeah, that, exactly. that captures everyone's imagination. 
there there was a common beat to be had with everybody turning to look at the guy and him sort of sheepishly being like, eh? I was amused by the fact that the young boy, uh, his speech impediment clears up instantly <laughs> when necessary. It reminded me of Eric Idle in Fish Called Wanda, where <laughs> when he's truly focused uh, on cookie boobs, he's able to really nail his communication. And l- let me tell you this, uh, in terms of the decision of local law enforcement sending your entire squad out based on the uh, psychic visions of a raspy little girl, I call bullshit on that. I call bullshit on that. You know, well, they I, do I, it I, again I, at the end of the movie. Yes, they do it repeatedly <laughs> in this film. And uh, I, like I said in, in the first episode, I found myself liking this movie a lot more than... I thought that I did in a weird, that's a really weird way to say, but the, like the more I thought about it, the more I looked at it, the more I'm like, yeah, actually I should really do appreciate this film. But in terms of, you know, logic, that's like the massive thing. It's like that shit and the kooky music behind the two goofy cops. Hmm. Uh, those are like the only two things that I like actually can truly put a finger on and say, I hate that. Ooh, I, I thought, like- a little bit of an explanation for that, listening to this commentary, uh, the kooky music. The mm. director said that he didn't realize, and you know, he's a, a foreigner and, and whatnot, how how over the top those two cops were being. And his unfortunate decision, like he, he said something in the commentary, like, I wished I could have told them to pull it back, but because I couldn't, I decided to just go with it, and that's what the music was. Like, he thought that was kind of showing, hey, this is intentional. Right, right. And I, I don't mind them, because the, the movie does need some lighter moments. And you might as well have, uh, and I, I like the rapport between those two actors. I, I think that they were probably, you know, hanging around set off to the side and looking at each other being like, all right, well, we're really minor characters. Is there something that we can do with this? Mm-hmm. And, you know, uh, when, excuse me, white belch right into my fucking microphone. <laughs> I mean, I like them apples. Hey, that's a really good segue to anyone uh, want to crack a beer in three seconds. Uh, hold on a second. I won't have a beer in three seconds, but I'll have one in, more than three, three seconds. One second. Well, I'm just going to do a countdown is what I'm saying. Well, no, don't do one yet. Uh, uh, where'd my opener go? Let me know when to say three. <laughs> okay, here we go. Ready. I'm ready. All right. Uh, Vic, are you participating? Let's I, explain to the audience what, what, what they're going to hear. No, what? I, I my beer is already poured. I'm sorry. God damn it, Vic. <laughs> <laughs> I can pee into one of the bottles if that helps. Uh, that would be a very authentic sound. John, let's, let's just wait. Let's just, let's just wait for the stars to align. Okay. No, I, I want my beer. So I'm going to count down from three, two, one. All right. Three, two, one. There you go. Oh, that that was a beautiful crack. In in terms of good, good luck, better luck next time, Vic. In, in terms of the an act of oral artist artistry, <laughs> if I were doing uh, sound design, I could not have done a better beer cracking opening sound. That well, you know, good. Mike, maybe for uh, Death Metal Two, if you need a beer cracking sound, it would it would Dude. actually give me tremendous pleasure if you used that. Dude, you never know, man. <laughs> Crazy right. shit can happen. 
I'll, I'll tell you what, nothing, uh, it's actually against metal law to be at a death metal show and not drink beer. So, entirely possible. All right, so Cookie Woman, Cookie Woman, um, and of course the little boy child translates for her because he speaks child, and, and that's good. The police literally save Tina from getting into the car with Michael, who uh, by that point has uh, removed his uh, kind of you know, dime store mask and put on his normal mask. And, uh, Jamie seems surprised that Tina is alive. And there's a a little bit of a reprieve for Jamie after that, where, and Tina, where, uh, suddenly Jamie is speaking again, which, um, I think with a bit of a wise ass comment during her commentary, uh, Daniel Harris says, and suddenly I can talk again. Who knew? (laughs) Yeah, because somehow yeah, this yeah. experience uh, grants her uh, the power of speech uh, back again. Yeah, but they they rushed this movie into production. They didn't have a full script when they began shooting, and there was a lot of stuff shot and not used, and then stuff that they needed and that wasn't shot. And they were making uh, kind of story decisions as they were shooting it, and of course they're getting fucking hammered. Uh, every day after production on top of that. So I, I I don't think that this movie is nearly as much of a bug nuts, ramshackle pile of nonsense as Friday the 13th part five, for instance, mm-hmm. I, that, that movie is, is like provided by cocaine. Uh, <laughs> Brought to you by cocaine. Yeah, exactly. But this movie doesn't have nearly the cohesion of three or four. For whatever that's worth, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, it looks cool. It's got a lot of cool ideas. But there is, like, kind of a... You you can tell that they're kind of making shit up as they go along. They're flying by to see their pants to a certain degree. I mean, it's, it's like, a very clear, like, 15 to 20% is a little fuzzy around this movie. And that's part Uh, of why it's so bug nuts. And and that's really, like, a big part of why I enjoy it so much. So, you know, sometimes flying by the seat of your pants is, like, a epic fail and sometimes it, it works and i think for the most part if that contributes to the weirdness of this film well you know good because it it paid off yeah i'll 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 take a really cool interesting scene over a movie that just kind of plods the numbers in an effectual manner we get another scene with the comedy cops and in this one uh loomis compels them to watch tina and i think it's interesting in this movie that we don't know for sure yet and i did say this last time but we don't know for sure that rachel uh the adopted sister of of jamie is dead for sure and this is kind of where you start to realize that baton is being passed from the co-lead of the last movie which of course is rachel to tina and you do see the relationship like they have some really nice they sell their emotional bond uh tina and jamie I think that the actresses do a really good job and there's a lot of tearful sobbing from, uh, from Jamie when uh, Tina decides to go out and see her boyfriend instead of staying where it's safe. And she knows she has a very strong premonition does Jamie that uh, Tina is not going to uh, make it out of this night alive. Tina is doing the wrong thing. Like, I feel like this is, the the entirety of the fourth movie was setting up this beat where like forced to choose between going out and having a good time 
Rachel would stay with Jamie. And Tina, there is this spirit inside of her that says, no, like, I know that there is all this evil and horrible shit in the world. And by God, I'm going to go out and be a normal teenager and have these these wonderful experiences absolutely flying in the face of that. And, like, I'm sorry that it comes at your misery and suffering, Jamie, but you don't understand. You don't understand what it's like to be a teenager. You don't understand what it's like to be me. Um, Vic, you just reminded me of something amazing from, I believe it was Sarajevo, and it was just some article many years ago that talked about uh, kids going to clubs. And by kids, all right, maybe they're over the drinking age, but young people insisted on going out to dance knowing that like buildings were being blown up uh you know bombed uh from above on a regular basis but they just couldn't not have that in their life yeah well john i just want to say that if you've given me all the money in the world i never could have guessed that sarajevo is where you were going with that (laughs) (laughs) well i i the both of you have kind of touched on a thought that i think drills down to the core of, of horror movies as a whole and, and slashers in particular is part of the joy and the dread and, and also the thing that people most make fun of these movies is that it's dead teenagers. It's, uh, you know, they go out and they get drunk and they get laid and a galoot shows up and gives them a hard time and blah, blah, blah. And, uh, you know, if those kids were just smart enough to just stay home, blah, blah, blah. But nobody who, go, who pursues that thought process takes a moment to step back and understand that that is a part of being an adolescent is carving out yourself as an independent entity from your family and from your parents. And so, yeah, you're going to be shitty and yeah, you're going to take risks because you're, you're trying to prove to yourself in the world that you're, you're now no longer a child, you're your own person. And so that's how people end up in barns getting laid and then stabbed in the head. Uh, but it also circles back around to the idea that, that King touched on in Dance of Macabre, that horror is in a lot of ways the most conservative genre because it, it, it comes down so hard on you for breaking from any kind of rule or tradition or la la la. If you step out of these lines, if you go outside, if you go outside the uh, light of the campfire, then you know here are these dooms that befall you consistently. Um, and so, yeah, Tina's scene with Jamie here is not only wonderfully acted and very well written, uh, but I would say is is unique in some ways in the horror genre, where a character is directly saying, "Please don't go out there," and the other character is just like, "I I realize that there's no like compelling reason. I'm not going to go save a life. I'm not going to go save the world. I'm I'm just going to go get drunk and late, but I kind of have to." And <laughs> and here's why, and, and w- without any big explanation for it, but it's going to happen anyways. So now you do get then, the feeling that she's not buying what Loomis is selling, and and thus what Jamie is selling, because she says basically that Loomis has filled her head, Jamie's head, with all of this boogeyman crap. So and, to this point, she's not really on board. And I, that's a very logical thought process because. We've just spent a lot of time talking about what a fucking kook Loomis is, especially in this film. So if she's all wound up, if Jamie is all wound up and scared about all this quote unquote crazy stuff, then 
There's it also makes sense that- two other points that you guys have touched on variously along the way. She was not in the last movie. Tina was not. So she does mm-hmm. not have firsthand experience with this stuff. And also, she is not her sister. Yes, they're close. But she is her sister's presumably best friend or, or close friend. So she doesn't mm-hmm. have the same level of responsibility to Jamie that Rachel would have. Yeah. That, yeah. It's not like four. It's not like Rachel and four. It, it's like, you know, do I, I hang out with your sister. That's and I like you. I think you're cute. But I mean, I'm not going to take commands based on your psychic. Also, you know, Jamie is surrounded by police and Loomis and like, you know, it's not like she's leaving her in a dark alley either. Yeah. Well, that's true. But I want to say so two things. First, I want to say that I think that in the traditional sort of slasher movie narrative, she she would she would stay like she would choose to stay and protect the kids. She would stay with Tommy Jarvis instead of leaving to go have sex and, you know, get drunk and, and do these other things. Am I, am I wrong in that? Uh, my, my immediate response to that, Vic, is, well, oh, yeah, because nobody did any of that in the Friday the 13th movies. <laughs> well, no, but I mean, I mean but I, given, the, given the choice, and especially I, I feel like she occupies the position of final girl, even if she's not actually the final girl, she is the Rachel of this movie. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And when given the, when given the choice between the virtuous, you know, sort of choice and the hedonistic choice, she sort of opts for the hedonistic choice, which is just I, it just feels so unusual to me. But the other point that I want to make is that I also feel like there is a there is a she is she is willfully ignoring Loomis and Jamie that that. Even if there was more evidence, even if Michael Myers was standing in the room, she would still be like, you know what? I'm going to the fucking barn and I'm going to get drunk and I'm going to hook up with, with Mikey and we're going to fuck in his car. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is she, she has this commitment to being a free-spirited teenager that I feel like is very unique for this genre. And it plays out never more so than than in this scene just as a blanket statement i really really like tina as a character and that's definitely not a widely shared thing uh when i was watching that documentary they mentioned you know she the actress mentions that people applauded when she's killed and i i can definitely see how her high spiritedness could come across to some people as annoying, but for a variety of reasons she's actually one of my favorite characters in this franchise i don't think this movie in specific, and generally slasher films in general, actually have the sort of schoolmarmy uh, disdain and contempt for these characters that you would associate with the willful depiction of their mistakes as being the reason they are damned. You know, like, I think that it's almost kind of a wink-wink, nudge-nudge with the teenage audience that, yeah, you know, look, we get into trouble and this is what could happen. And, but it's not like the, when you look at a movie like reefer madness, when you can tell Mm -hmm. that the writers and the, and the producers and the director and everyone behind that film are creating propaganda. That's when you really know that the, the film is judging the characters who are quote unquote, making the mistake 
that they are being punished for. And I think just as a right. blanket statement, yeah, we can say that slash, slasher movies are could be interpreted as puritanical and moralistic. In reality, as we've touched on many times with what the filmmakers are doing on the set and behind the scenes, that nobody actually making these movies has that opinion about the teenage behaviors that they are depicting. John, you are absolutely right. I'll tell you. Uh, I'll, I'll tell you why. Because one hundred percent of the time, one hundred percent of the time, in slasher movies, when the teenage characters are getting drunk and getting laid and getting fucked up, it looks like a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Exactly. exactly. It's not chaos with an evil devil light, and people are like, "What am I doing with my life?" Uh, if you took the galoot away you would have a summer teen comedy. And I think that's the sort of... 100% of the time. ...illicit communication with the audience that's going on that we all know is going on. That, you yeah, know. The, the, yeah, the only time that we uh, have characters that are like clearly crafted to be killed are when the slasher movies you know, underline how unctuous they are. And, and signal to the audience, we want to see them die. It will be fun to watch them get chopped up and, and murdered. Uh, but a, 100% of the time, if you see characters getting fucked up and laid in these films, they're having a great fucking time. And I, I'm kind of circling all the way to back around. I have to wonder if these characters, Jason, Michael, SYZ, if they are walking representations of the risk that you have to surmount as a teenager uh, in order to uh, prove that you're an adult. I mean, I, it's interesting that, you know, the, the, the last teenage girl is often, you know, she's a final girl, but uh, you know, she comes out yeah. the other side being a final, final woman. Perhaps. I got chills when you were saying that, because I don't believe we've ever touched on this before, but I really believe that yes, it actually turns the whole thing on its head. And I, I think, you know, maybe this seems obvious to me, but I don't think we've said it. In reality, these are a tremendously cathartic, empowering story for teenagers because, yes, we do at points, quote-unquote, identify with the killer and see things from his point of view and enjoy the senseless slaughter of innocent people. But the movies are always built around and end in those kids defeating the archetype of their fear, the thing that preys on them. And in a way, if you really want to look into it, even the sort of system and the fear that society is putting in them about their behavior... Because, like, oh, well, Jason is saying that you shouldn't get drunk and have sex. Well, what happens to Jason? No, at the end of the movie, they beat Jason. And they are free. And I think that you actually leave the theater as an audience member, as a teenager, saying, yeah, it's scary and there are threats, but you can beat that. And you know what? It's, it's, it's okay. And we have to grow up and we have to do these things and we have to face danger and fear. As you said, Mike, in order to cross the real threshold from childhood into adulthood. And that's necessary. Yeah, I, I kind of building on that, uh, 0% of slasher killers actually give a shit 
if you're getting laid or drunk. Uh, they only care that you're vulnerable in those moments. Uh, uh, let me backtrack on that. The see no evil guy actually is like a hyper, super religious guy, and he actually does get mad if you uh, drink and get laid. He's the only one, though. These I, films... like Chucky, Chucky, Chucky doesn't care. I mean, that's the kind of shit they was doing when he was alive. I, I Jason doesn't care. He's like a weird giant mutant mama's boy. I, Michael doesn't care. He's the shape. Uh, he has no it's, soul. It's, Candyman doesn't care. Pinhead doesn't care. In fact, Pinhead is going to drag you down to hell so he can get fucking. So he'll drench you in so much debauchery that he can't handle it anymore forever. It's I like think you're arguing are... against me though, in the sense that no, no, I, no. I'm saying that like. The the straw man of the argument in these films is that the killer represents the voice that's telling you you shouldn't do these things. And right, somehow yeah, by yeah. defeating that voice, we are in a way actually leaving the audience member feeling that it's okay, you can have sex, you can get drunk and survive. Yeah, you, you, you have to go into the world and you have to do these things. And they are a lot of fun. But they do carry a risk, and the risk is personified not by a positive pregnancy test, mm-hmm. not by an STD, not by uh, a DUI, but by, this, <laughs> but by this dude who's going to shove a knife in your face, right? So mm-hmm. Because that's way more interesting to watch and entertaining to watch. Otherwise, it's the fucking, uh, you know, if you take away the glute, you've got uh, Requiem for a Dream. So exactly like, yeah, that like Requiem for a Dream is as close to Reefer Madness in a way, as far as like what it leaves the audience thinking as, as I can come up with, you know, yeah. But, yeah, but these films, like I think we've touched on, you know, many times this sort of conservatism by nature of these films. And I, I think, you know, I don't know how revelatory it really is, but I really feel like tonight is the first time I really realized that it's, Actually, in their construction, they're doing the exact opposite of that. And they are actually from, you know, the jump saying, actually, no, it's okay to have sex and drink and whatnot. You just have to be somewhat smart about it and strong and not a complete dipshit. Because as you were referring to earlier, yeah, that we ascribe the characters who get killed that the movie wants us to root for getting killed with some social wrongs. There are bitch, they're jealous, they're a womanizer, you know, these various sort of uh, moral failings that high schoolers have. And yeah, those people uh, are punished, and we root for their punishment, but they are committing, at least on some level, actual wrongs. And I'm not saying that there aren't, you know, totally nice, innocent characters that, that get killed, especially in Friday the 13th movies, for no reason other than the fact that they're, you know unawares while having sex and, and Jason kills them. I'm not you right. know, saying that that's not the case, but generally as far as getting the audience on board with wanting characters to get killed, it's always for uh, some semblance of a better reason than that. And to be a little more specific, I would say let's take a look at, a look at what Loomis actually represents in this particular franchise is he's an authority figure, yeah, but he's also a used up old man telling you not to do stuff, telling you that it's dangerous, it's travel, don't go out, there's there's a guy out there, He's a watch school out. Mom. Yes, exactly. Laurie Strode is a hero, a heroic figure, 
due to the fact that she's face sound the shape on multiple occasions, not because she's fucking uh, rolling a helicopter. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, so she's yeah. able to navigate both worlds. You know, she can be the parent's best friend in terms of being a good babysitter. And, you know, she's obviously her friend's best friends, even though she's on the more conservative side. And she can be right. best friends with little kids, too. You know, she mm-hmm. can she can travel in any circle and she's comfortable with that. And there's a value to that that all people should, you know, recognize in watching. Yeah, it's interesting that in the first movie, we have three girls uh, who are temporarily given authority figure status and two of them utterly fail. One of them absolutely succeeds and she beats herself up emotionally over it throughout the entire thing, but she's the one who survives. Well, Mike, I just, I just want to give you credit because I, I just heard you use multiple times the word galoot and that I feel like <laughs> step up for all of us. That's, that's good stuff. Popularized um, in Herman Melville's third novel. Herman, the, the, the galoot. Uh, well, I, I, I switched to the glue yeah, after I realized that Mongoloid American might be problematic. So yeah, Tina goes to the tower farm and dances with this creepy rat boy dude in a costume who is one big old pervy horn dog. And at least my note was that it appears that Tina is DTF and doesn't care about Mike right now. She seems to want to have random sex to point up, uh, to prove a point to her boyfriend, uh, who is conspicuously absent. Yeah, she she kind of frantically bounces around uh, with this guy, and this is probably the ugliest Halloween costume I've ever seen in oh, my yeah. life. Yeah, I, I, it, it's like this this guy should be giving a blowjob to a butler in the overlook hotel. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> I can't believe he expected to score in that outfit. Who? Yeah, exactly. It's like this. This is like the Death Star trench run in terms of like one in a million shots that he would look at a full length mirror of himself in this outfit, in this bizarre, like chewed up teddy bear outfit. Go to a party and still get laid. I mean, he's either got to be like the hottest dude ever, or else, uh, yeah, it's just he was just the right. Right place at the right time. And he's going <laughs> to carry this memory for the rest of his life. Every, every Halloween after this, he's going to think, dude, the costume. Yeah. The lucky yeah. costume. When he's like 49, 49 years old and he's wearing that yeah. at the bar. Like, what's going on? Why am I not scoring? <laughs> I got Tina back in 89. <laughs> the, the elbows and knees have since been worn out. Oh. He's stinking of beer and cigarettes, slumped at the corner of a bar nest. Bukowski muttering into his beer about the time that this costume got him laid this in 1989. Survives. This guy survives, so yeah, I mean, we could follow his uh, his his life afterwards. I, I, don't, I don't even know what he's dressed as. He's just dressed as a piece of shit. <laughs> <laughs> he just gets laid anyways. He's the rotting corpse of Ben Tramer. Yeah. <laughs> I'll tell you what. Somewhere out there, there is a toy company that can make that little diorama, and there are 45-year-old men who would gladly buy it. Yep. So, um, we, they're listening to this podcast, Mike. Yes, <laughs> yeah, don't, I, I, don't I, disparage I, our yeah. listeners. <laughs> Not to beat up on potential advertisers or core <laughs> audience members. <laughs> I don't know if you've seen the demographics for our show, but it's, it's not teenagers. <laughs> yeah, 
it's it's almost 100% comprised of people who know exactly what you're talking about when you say Ben Tramer's death scene. Yeah, "Yeah, of course, yeah. I I can immediately tell you what that diorama looks like. Yes, I would pay $99 to have a diorama of that in my kitchen. And we love our listeners, and we're grateful to you, and we do this for you. All 12 of you. All a couple of hundred of you, yes. Yes. Thank God, thank God you know uh, what Ben Tramer's death scene was. All right. Now, I know we've touched on this before, but the idea that two cops with guns out let anyone hold a butcher knife over a screaming girl and do not put any bullets in this guy. It's so quaint. It's so adorable that this kid gets away with his little prank without any fear of being riddled with ammunition. It's just that this is where 1989 feels so different from where we are now. John, I think you're wrong. I, I, I assume that Spitz is actually quite terrified of that but he's so committed to the bit that he fights through the fear. Well, as an experienced get... theater actor, yes. Exactly, because mm-hmm. of his summer stock doing Guys and Dolls. But um, <laughs> uh, I actually think one of the great things about the scene is the one of the cop's lines when he's like, you're lucky we're, we're not good cops. <laughs> yes, um, that is a great line. <laughs> <laughs> like, but I, you have to wonder how many fucking times can uh, a movie in this franchise play this card and you, you get to part five and the answer is we're not done yet. And, <laughs> and, and especially when you step back for a second and go, okay, where did the mask come from? where the outfit come from? Not that, 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 if you think about for any, like even a microsecond, you, your head starts to hurt. Um, oh no. I mean, in the sense that again, like uh, Blair, Witch project two was all about the tchotchkes and whatnot that were developed after Blair, Witch project. I mean, I do believe that in our society, after multiple murder sprees, well, I don't know. Actually, I was going to say that, like, of course, there would be, like, some kind of uh, cult market for uh, accoutrement that have to do with it. But, I mean, in some ways, like, we wouldn't do that with, like, a mass shooting or something like that. Um, Yeah, yeah. So it's in such poor taste that it might not happen today. You know... If you're going to talk about poor taste, I, I was just thinking the other day that uh, if you took away the melee weapons and replaced them with an AR-15, you would have an unsellable screenplay. Yes and no. I've read, I mean, yeah, I don't, I'm not saying they sold for a lot of money, but I've read and seen, like, I feel like a lot of school shootery scenarios that are in the zeitgeist, mm. so they they find their way into our culture. Yeah. I mean, of course they do. I mean, they're like a big, I think it's almost gotten to the point with that, Mike, that like after 50 of them, like, isn't it just like a world war two movie? I don't know. It's still like the kind of movie that everyone squinches up their face at still. We're we're not quite there in a way. I I feel responsibility to steer us back to uh, the, Friday the 13th, everybody. More specifically, I think what what uh, what occurs to me about this is not just the prevalence of dumbass teenagers putting on the Michael Myers outfit and then like just crossing their fingers that cops aren't going to shoot them. <laughs> but apparently, they, Spitz never heard about the guy in Part Four. Yeah, or 
yeah, or Ben Tramer, or right. yeah, no, it's yeah, that, that myth is not permeated Haddonfield the way that it should. Yeah, no, by the way, the non the non Michael yeah. body count of Michael imitators stands at two already. We're, well, yeah, I, I, it is not you are really flipping the coin playing this game, my friend. This is a true Russian roulette. <laughs> but consider that they play that card, they play this card one more time. Later on, they get into the barn, and he comes in, and it's like, oh, my God, it's really Michael Myers. And he raises the knife, and no, it's actually just a horny teenager. It's the double dream sequence almost, where it's like, we're going to pretend he's Michael Myers, but you know it's not really because the cops are right there. And, blah, blah, blah. and then we're going to pretend it's Michael Myers, and you're, now you're going to think it is because you're just, but no, it's still not Michael Myers. I think this uh, movie sets a record for those fake-outs and jump scares. I, Exactly. Uh, for, uh, well, I, for four, I would give for just sheer volume of dudes because there, there's that one scene where uh, Jamie is being pursued by like one guy in the mask, and then it turns out there's like four or five of them who happen to be just so have to be like lumbering around this neighborhood in the exact same outfit with the exact same joke in their minds. And it's one of the dumber moments in four, in I would say. One. Yeah, yeah, but I'm yeah, saying, yeah. like, I didn't count officially, and I probably should have for this podcast, but my feeling by this point was that we've had six jump scares, and that to me seems high. Normally, it's like three to four, right? Actual, like, just total bullshit scares. Six, oh, yeah, six yeah. yeah. Seems, six seems high. Yeah, we're uh, really up there with the cat scares, but uh, don't we get yeah, one in yeah, the barn? Right here. Yeah, yeah this we, is the we, sixth we, one. Oh, wait a minute, guys, guys, guys. Mm-hmm. Shh. Snap! I actually had huh? another one. I, I I I thought you were going to strangle a kitten, but that's much better. I did just quietly. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, actually, I strangled a, a a kitten and choked a chicken at the same time. Hey, that's so you got off on it. <laughs> it's, a, it's a pretty normal Tuesday for yours truly. <laughs> Oh, that is some good podcasting glory. I will say, I mean, one of the things, like, it's it's almost comical, like, re-watching it when Samantha comes out. She's like, look what I found, like, kitten, and then, like, runs back into the barn. But this sort of this preponderance of kittens in the midst of what's going to be this horrific slaughter, it kind of worked. I don't know. I liked it. Like, like Tina looking for the kitten, trying to track these kittens through the barn. Dude, I love it. I love it. Yeah. I mean, maybe we're not, I, I have to admit, like this podcast, some, sometimes the tenor of it is a little more mocking. I'm not going out of my way to say, like, I really like this, c- the construction of this sequence. But I think you've hit on one here that this is like a, a very suspenseful and effective sequence. And, and even I did touch on this last time, but I think that all of these fake outs do have sort of the... Uh, impact or the effect or the consequence of when something real happens, I, I think it hits a little harder because like we've had so many tension release, tension release. Oh, there's no release this time. And by the way, uh, the director said he was going for Hitchcockian suspense and very short kills, which he said characterized this series in direct opposition to, and he named them, Friday the 13th and Nightmare on Elm Street. And we've discussed that Mustafa Akkad was way more into that. Like from the beginning, we've talked about like, well, this script had more gore. And he said, no, no, no. 
And I, I think that, that that definitely comes down from Akkad in the sense that, uh, like, he he was into that. Like, we're not, this is not a series that has, you know, trauma-level uh, eye-popping hmm. gore or, like, a Stuart Gordon kind of approach to shock and, and, and horror. Like, they, they really do say, say what you want, whether it actually, you know, does more than aspire to Hitchcockian. Yeah, these these films, and we we actually said this with Friday, like they are a series of suspense uh, set pieces that occasionally pay off in bursts of violence. When Tina finally comes across the bloody kitten, that is the payoff of this entire sequence. I mean, I actually find the sex to be kind of tame. It's not quite part of Friday Thirteenth Part Six tame, but it's it's very it, it's it's sex with the small s. I very less- clearly. I mean, I actually find it less alluring than, or, you know, I, it certainly makes less of an impact on me than the scene with Brady and the sheriff's daughter in part four, even though they never actually have sex. Um, you know, I mean, it's you, this is sort of built up in that, like, this is going to be their first time. And there's, there's you know, uh, I actually appreciate that they, they set this up a little bit as sort of a big experience. And there's a lot of creeping around in this location here, and I mean, it just goes on forever. But I really, I feel that it has an entertainment value. And while you were saying, that, I agree. That- yeah, yeah. That I, I, you'll, I'm looking at this barn sequence right now. In fact, and it's really well dressed. It's really, really well lit. And yeah. I, I'm not super crazy about the the kitten stuff because uh, I, I think that. You know, merely pointing out the fact that, ha ha, we're doing a cat jump scare doesn't alleviate the fact that, yes, you're doing a fucking cliche jump scare. But at the same time, we have like some really kick-ass chiaroscuro going on in, in this barn that I, I'm I'm kind of loving, man. It's like, I mean, overall, this movie looks good and this barn is kind of a high point in that department. Yeah, they, they, they have an excellent DP. I mean, they have an interesting... Yeah, I mean, like all the lighting schemes are naturalistic, but like pointed. They all have like an intent, and they're you know like they're making choices with it. They're they're creating effects in every shot, and mm-hmm. it's 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 really solid uh, without ever feeling you know really over over the top. It's never Argento. It, it's still naturalistic, but it still I mean, it just looks really good. And uh, speaking of looking good, so does. Tina in this scene. I mean, so with does her, Sammy. Ah, uh, yeah, but yeah, the, the little uh, what was that like a vampire French maid thing that she's got going on with the little lace gloves? Yeah, there's there's something going on with her, man. Oh yeah, good stuff. Well, she's not cannon fodder. I mean, I think by now we you know she's not a red shirt. She's a cool character. Oh, by the way, I did want to uh, mention that uh, my fiance uh, is a former makeup artist and a. Uh, person who deals with skin for a living. She's an esthetician. She loved Sammy's makeup here. She thought it was really cool. Just a little aside, one of the things technologically, or I'm sorry, stylistically, that we do here is uh, alternate POV shots. Like we have real Michael POV shots and we have uh, Sammy's boyfriend's uh, POV shots. And you do kind of feel, though, when it gets real, there's a little more thrill of dread. Like you kind of know, all right, no more fucking around. And then we see his burned hand grab the pitchfork. And right. at that point he doesn't waste any time. 
Michael impales Spitz with his pitchfork, which is a very Friday the 13th-esque kill. Uh, Michael uses a lot of weapons in this film, which is much more like Jason than usual for him. Yeah, I've noticed that uh, as much as I enjoy this barn sequence, it's probably the most Mm -hmm. Friday-esque sequence that we've had in this franchise as a whole, Uh, you know, due to this kind of semi-rural setting. Uh, the farm implements that he's using for murder, X, Y, Z. Yeah, it feels like right out of part three or something. Yeah, well, I mean, part three, you know, about a third of that movie is in that stupid fucking barn, so, yeah. Yeah, it's like the motorcycle gang, Spider, and and those those guys getting Mm -hmm. their their comeuppance. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of hay billing. Yeah, he picks up a scythe, and apparently it's an implied decapitation of uh, of Sammy. And I do like that she kind of she she picks up the pitchfork and tries to square off with them. She's she's spunky, but uh, you know her attack uh, is fruitless. That's kind of the thing. Michael is a weapon opportunist. He's most identified with a butcher knife. But that's only because he spent so many so so much time haunting the suburbs. You know, they, you know, a butcher knife is a thing that you'll find in any block, in any kitchen, in any suburban home. You know, it's either that or his big fucking mitts. Well, yeah, I mean that's a really good point. I mean, if you want to draw a demarcation between like the haunts of these killers, and obviously, you know, the hunting ground defines a killer well. Uh, Jason, more or less, you could say, you know, lives on a lake or the woods, and uh, yeah. and Michael haunts the, the suburbs. There's no doubt about it. Well, but I also feel like at this point, Friday the 13th, they were sort of self-consciously trying to put new weapons in Michael's, in uh, Jason's hands, rather, in, in the Friday the 13th franchise. Whereas there's much less concern with that here. Like, it's... Uh, again, the, the you know we're we're sort of talking about how the the idea that uh, Michael's using a pitchfork is sort of novel, whereas in Friday the Thirteenth Part Five, uh, Jason used a belt to squeeze a guy's eyeballs out of his head. Like one of, one of his better kills, and definitely one of the best kills of that film. Yes, agreed. But I'm saying it was that's that's much more exotic. I think I feel like they were mm-hmm. working harder to come up with more interesting kills, and I don't think that's exactly what the Halloween franchise was about, certainly exactly. at least at this point. Yeah, following up you... on that notion that I raised earlier and what you just said, Vic, I mean, like, I think it's very clear that Friday the 13th movies, on some level, put burned a lot of calories and put a lot of thought into inventive kills, and these movies, the Halloween series, are much more about the lead-up to the kills. I mean, yeah, I'm not going to say that it's all... Hitchcock at its best, but they're mm-hmm. definitely much more interested in sort of the stock than like delivering a coup de gras that you're like, oh my god, I can't believe he used X, Y, and Z on his victims, X, Y, and Z. <laughs> yeah, it, for that reason, I, I think that the more clear uh, extension of Friday the 13th is Final Destination, where you're mm-hmm. showing up to see the kooky ways in which someone's going to get killed this time. And the Friday the 13th movie, you're just like, oh my God, in this one, Jason like shows a corkscrew in a dude's eye and then he grabs another dude by his head. And, and yeah, the, the kills are, are, you know, it's, it's way more about the lead up and 
Halloween, and he, you know, Michael just kind of kills whatever's on hand. And if he doesn't have anything on hand, he just uses his hands. And uh, Final Destination, uh, you know, the kind of billion dollar franchise that never that nobody recognizes as a hmm. billion dollar franchise. I mean, it's kind of the new metal of horror in a certain <laughs> way, but 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 at the same time. Uh, you are kind of watching these movies to see the weird ways that characters are dispatched. But if you flip it around to something like, say, J-Horror and their ilk, it's almost a staid, ritualistic regularity. If you do this, then this happens to you. You die in the same way every single time. You know? I don't mean to say this like in terms of this sort of stayed judgmental thing, but like the pornography of murder is a phrase that comes to my mind here. Sure. Whereas like, yeah. you know, the, the Friday the 13th films are all about the sort of fetishistic staging of these kills. And we glory in the little details of, Oh, and his eyeball popped out and the noise right. maker was jammed into his eye socket. And, <laughs> and, um, yeah, exactly. The Bushmaster yeah. 5000 yeah. comes out and, you know, I can't wait right. to see it, you know, maul someone's body. Whereas yeah, these films are, are absolutely not built on. I can't wait to see a Halloween movie to see the crazy ways that the film, you know, show that lovingly depicts Michael Myers uh, slowly brutalizing people. So yeah, in a way, these are a much more old-fashioned uh, films. Like the series is, and, is way more old-fashioned. And like you said, I, I think that Mustafa Akkad kind of grabbed those reins and yanked them back in that direction. You know, two is kind of a cheesy movie in a lot of ways because it's chasing yep. Friday the Thirteenth. Whereas Lately. these later films, yeah, exactly. Whereas uh, these later films, you know, three is kind of its own thing. Uh, it's exceptionally gory, but be, you know, it's kind of a, in its own world. Whereas four, four and five are, we're clearly like yanking it back to the extent that they had to go back and like do reshoots just to insert gore scenes, just so the audience would be like, "Oh, I'm getting what I want out of a slasher film." Because without those, it would just be it would be nothing but. They were trying to be trendy with Halloween too. By this point, they're I won't call them uh, tour films. Obviously, I mean we change filmmakers no, yeah, every time yeah. out. Um, yeah. But like these films are are more unabashedly. We're gonna do what we're gonna do, and like they're not uh, obviously chasing any kind of trend or really trying to. Well, what's going to get the teenagers to show, show up this time? And I mean, I think for better or for worse, the Friday movies are like constantly trying to find something cool and new and that'll get the kids' attention, you know? Yeah, because Jason in and of himself is not considered to be enough. Uh, you always have to have him. But every movie, it's not only does he, he murders a bunch of people in way different kooky ways, but it's also, you know, especially after four, uh, you know, four is like the last true movie. And after that, it's like every yep. uh, film is like some kooky version thereof. You but, almost uh, have to they, say they, they try to reimagine it every movie yeah. after, after four. Yeah, especially the new line films I get really fucking gonzo. Uh yeah, yeah, yeah. I, you know, uh, but I, that's kind of the weird dichotomy of these two franchises. They're they're running on equal and separate tracks, and they're kind of looking at each other, but they they both succeed in different ways. And I will say that if there's any uh, 
benefit to my life <laughs> for having done these podcasts <laughs> besides you know just fucking drinking beer and watching horror movies which is something that I would be doing anyways it's the fact that I've come to appreciate Halloween 4 and 5 we should pick it up with after Tina finds the bodies and whatnot um who uh, Mike Michael I think the the pretense of it being her boyfriend is gone but now like he is in a car uh pursuing her and she screams, and she knows it's not her boyfriend. So. Well, here, here's the funny thing about Five, is in terms of circling back around to Halloween 1, it under really carves out the fact that Michael is the one slasher who drives. Yeah. Uh, I mean, he's not Christine, per se, but we haven't seen him be this car-centric since the first one where he spends half the fucking movie tooling around in a station wagon. Uh, you know, he, he actively pursues characters behind the wheel of a car. He pretends to be another character in order to steal his car and get closer to a potential victim. You know, la, 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 la. He's very car-driven, so to speak, uh, in this film in a way that we haven't seen in quite some time. And I, th- I think I find that really interesting. Well, it's true, but I, I think I brought this up last time that one of the things about this franchise in general is they keep having to find ways to give Michael cars that are distinct in some way. So in the first one, we get the one that just has the city logo on it. In the the th- uh, fourth one, rather, we get the wrecking, you know, the, the uh, wrecker, the, the tow truck or whatever. Mm-hmm. And in this one, he gets this muscle car. And so you're right that I do think they're like, all right, he's got this this fucking muscle car. Like we're gonna get some mileage out of it. Again, no pun intended. Mm-hmm. But you guys uh, need to stop with these car puns. We could do this all night, John. <laughs> all night. <laughs> By the way, I love in part eight when he's driving the lime green Geo Metro. Oh, yeah. unbelievable! So I, I, I love in Halloween nine when he's driving the moped and he runs over somebody on their face. <laughs> and, and and then he and then they kicks a wheelie and goes sup dog because he has to run over them several times to the moped. It, it's not a it's not a clean kill, but no. um, the Vespa well, but, was way nastier. When we when we <laughs> get to this car chase scene, I mean, this is something like you were just saying. This is something we kind of haven't seen before in or something not something that leaps out to me as something we've seen before in a slasher film. Mm, I will say, I mean, you guys, you've seen Road Games. I mean, there are um, Joyride. There are plenty of movies where the uh, sort right, of psycho I, guy I, drives I, a car. Right, right, right. But, but the I, Hitcher. I, I, especially the Hitcher. We, we kind of tie in with that, you know, that entire beat with the tow truck and everything else. There is a Hitcher element to, you know, and, and also tie into the idea that Michael kills you with whatever's on hand. It's like... If he's got a pitchfork, he's going to use a pitchfork. If he's got a butcher knife, he's going to use a butcher knife. He's going to run you over with the car. He's going to run you over with the car. What what makes it interesting is that he's not like those guys are all like establishedly established as just crazy dudes. But what makes it interesting is like this is a Freddy or Jason. Like there's a unique sort of subset of the pantheon of bad guys that Michael inhabits. And yes, he's the only, or Leatherface, he's the only one of those guys that are his clear peers that has the wherewithal to 
you know, drive motor vehicles relatively well. I mean, he does have a major head-on with a tree here, and the car goes up mm-hmm. like there was dynamite in it. But Yeah, of course. Yeah. <laughs> of course. I will say, too, though, I, one of the things I really enjoyed about this is when he, he gets it. I mean, again, it's a, it's, a, it's a cool scene. He's chasing the kids. The kids are running out of the way. Like, it's, you know, it's very moodily shot as he's running mm-hmm. through the forest and stuff. Yeah, I love the fog. The fog great. looks great. The fog is a, is a terrific touch. But when he finally crashes and you have the of his head on the uh, the horn, just setting up the moment when the sound stops, mm-hmm. and then you realize that. I mean, again, that of course he's still alive, and so it's not. It's 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 in no way is it a surprise that he that you know a car crashed and kill him. But they find this cool, suspenseful way just with the sound design mm-hmm. to suggest that Michael Myers is still coming. Um, it's a, I, I actually found that quite inventive, and I, and I really liked uh, Jamie's reaction to it. Yeah, she's instantly terrified. And it's yeah. Great. Uh, I do want to point out from a production standpoint that in the commentary, uh, weirdly enough, uh, Billy uh, participated in the commentary, the child actor came back to do the commentary with Danielle. And they uh, mentioned that neither of them were extensively replaced by stunt doubles in this sequence. Yeah. did have one for a little bit, but for the most part, they both acknowledged that if they had taken a wrong turn when running out their little, you know, uh, course that they were supposed to take here, they were running and cutting and jumping in front of a real car. Like this could have been bad. And the stuntman did not a hundred wasn't it, you know when they started shooting the scenes it was very clear that the stuntman couldn't you know he, he was obviously a very skilled driver but at the same time it's not a hundred percent that he could see them because it's dark yes. and it's foggy and they're short and and uh, very similarly uh, in one of the other documentaries I watched like Daniel mentions that when they do the uh, and when he's punching the knife through the duct to get at her, mm. uh, it was very kind of thrown together, that gag. It's just like, all right, get in that thing. And he's going to punch uh, this knife through this thing. And that's going to be it. I, you know, the stories that they have about part four of, you know, she's a child, kid gloves, everyone's watching out for her, la, la, la. I'm not saying that this is a fucking Fulci movie by, or, or, or a Hong Kong movie where there's like, uh, you know, let's see if someone dies. <laughs> but they were way more cavalier about safety and these children on in, this in, production. In this one. Yeah, I felt that, like there was that, a non-zero four. chance that we could have had a Vic Morrow kind of a situation here. Yeah, that, yeah, yeah. That this could have been like a Brandon Lee type scenario, but uh, yeah, it, the, yes, exactly. A non-zero chance. Whereas before, you know, Daniel Harris was very, very thorough about how extraordinarily careful and supportive and kid gloves and oh my god, she's a little girl. Let's take care of her. And in this one, it's like let's get fucked up and blow some shit up, bro. So the culmination of this sequence, of course, is that Tina has to step up. She has to go after Jamie. And that brings us to her taking the knife. And, you know, it's just one stab. So I think there's a non-zero chance that, that Tina survives. Like, we see her. I agree she's with that. She's not 100% covered up when she's carried out later. And you normally you would, uh, you would cover a, a dead person as a paramedic if you're carrying them. So yeah. she looks lifeless, but she's actually more unconscious. So 
Yeah, we, we see a knife enter her body on screen, but her quote-unquote death sequence is very, very similar to the earlier quote-unquote death se- sequence with Rachel in the sense that in terms of the staging, the blocking, the editing, you would not be super, super shocked mm-hmm. if either character shows up later. The only so, difference is really that, like, we cut away and we don't know how many times Michael stabbed Rachel after that. But we do yeah. know in this sequence that that does not occur. Yeah, yeah, precisely. In neither death sequence are we 100% convinced that this character is 100% dead. And that's, um, a, that's a clever thing. And I think it works in both cases to the benefit yeah. of the movie. I want to be as optimistic as possible with mm-hmm. Tina because she's one of my favorite characters in, in yeah. any slasher films. Guys, Tiffany, Tina doesn't make it. What? She doesn't make it. She she Not, made it she to pop back up. She's dead. Don't Not in it. my Halloween 5. Not It's, it's not my truth. Vic. It's not my truth, Vic. Vic, she's carried out. She's limp. Her arm is hanging, but they did not cover her. Like, that is in at least. Was, it, it may not be a real, like, procedure. That was because, in they, a, that was because they, they oh. wanted Jamie to know that she was dead. Vic. They wanted, Vic. They wanted Jamie to see her dead body as they carried her First back. off, the, the knife goes into the clavicle, not the heart, more or less. Yeah. Yes. Um, also. If there's very one high on the piece body of shorthand in movies and television, it's that you cover the body when it's dead as a paramedic, and if they're not covered, they're alive. Like that is like if, Santa Claus. It's a rule. We know how it works. Well, no, it works, it works that way under one condition: if they show up, watch Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. It works that way if they show up later in the movie alive. She does not show up later in the movie. She's dead. Tina didn't make Damn you, Vic! Maybe, look, I'll I'll give you this. Maybe she got to the hospital before she succumbed to her injuries, (laughs) but she didn't make it. She's gone. I think think that Tina is just sleeping in that scene. (laughs) Tina went to the farm. There's another farm. Yes, yes. Tina, Tina went to the Tina farm where there are a lot of other <laughs> Tina's there. kittens that are yeah. not covered in yeah. blood. Yeah, exactly. There's a lot of kittens and they run and they play in the sunshine. On you the know, Tina my, my parents farm. actually also gave farm. me that speech with my dogs. Really? Oh, yeah. yeah. Verbatim. Really? Mm-hmm. My yeah. Cocker Spaniel uh, amigo who barked too much and the neighbors didn't like it. I got the, I got the speech about the farm. If you're going to get rid of a dog for limper reasons that it's going to die, you're going to resort to that kind of storytelling. By the way, my my parents are 100% conflicted on what happened in reality. My mom (laughs) swears that he actually went to a farm to this day. And my dad is convinced that the dog went to the pound. And my, wow, and my and my dad is convinced that he strangled the dog in the backyard. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> well, my dad has um, uh, infinitely worse memory than my mom, but my mom is more likely to dream up a a more palatable scenario in her own mind. So I don't know exactly what happened. It's it's one of the mysteries that will haunt me to the grave. It's too bad because it doesn't pay off as well as it should. But this is Tina's redemption. For leaving Jamie behind at the hospital in the earlier scene, um, because she so, took the knife for her, like literally. She, she, not only, yeah, I mean, she literally leaps in front of it like she's leaping in front of a bullet. 
that's part of her character arc. I think it's part of her redemption. Does yeah. it have to be a fatal sacrifice? Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> it's a Halloween movie. Everybody sacrifices fatal. Now, Vic, my, my argument to you and your whole point that, well, if she didn't see, Jamie didn't see Tina's face, how would she know? Well, I, I think in cinematic language, if they were carrying a young woman's body who had a dangling hand under a sheet over her face, she's not going to be like, oh, who's that? I think she's going to know that was Tina. So either you're saying that the filmmakers have a tremendous lack of subtlety and that Jamie absolutely had to see Tina's face to know that she was dead, or I think that we, in the classic tradition of film vocabulary, they're, they're leaving the door open that she's alive. Far Guys, I'm way to sell this. Mike, are you going to look no, at the I'm, novelization? I'm, no. <laughs> I'm going to fist fight you about this next time I see I, you. <laughs> I have a very, very good way to sell this. Guys, listen very closely. Listen very closely to the way that I'm going to sell this. Oh, shocker. Did not see that coming. I, I actually found a uh, 24 fluid ounce can of Coors Light way in the back of my fridge. I'm going to drink it right now. That is a beautiful thing. <laughs> I now, know, like, nothing. There's nothing that can't be that can't be settled by a 24 ounce can of Coors Light. Yeah, like I was being funny, but at the same time, I was also being truthful. I've, yeah. I've somehow calmed down a lot since you did that, so it really works. Not me, John. I'm gonna kick your fucking ass. <laughs> <laughs> See you Vic in the Rick steel Rome. cage, Vic. Yeah. Halloween five. Loomis talks to Michael again, like at least twice in this movie. He knows that Michael is lurking around out of sight and he more or less uh, pitches him on what Loomis has to offer. And Michael is interested. Calls to him in the woods. And I like the image of Michael being, you know, the shape deep in the woods. He's there. He's listening. He's amongst the, the trees there's something really kind of cool and creepy about this this scenario, the setup. I will tell you right now, and I'm going to stand by this till my dying day. I, I think this is entire thing uh, that's introduced in this film about Michael, your rage must be contained. I think it's a lot of horseshit because we've seen four movies in which the entire drive is that there's nothing in him. So suddenly it's a rage. I don't buy it. I don't buy well, it for one second. No, no, no. But look, I think if you see, like, it's, I think that he is gambling. I don't think he believes that. He certainly doesn't believe that the, that the rage can be contained or anything else. Mm-hmm. I think that he is just trying to, anything to connect with Michael in order to get him back there. I mean, that's, I think just calling it a rage he uses the word rage repeatedly throughout this next act. And I don't buy it at all. Jason Voorhees. Yes. Candyman. Yes. Leatherface. Yes. But this character is the opposite of rage. Now, wait a I don't buy it at all. There are several things to unpack here in this movie. Instead of Loomis, just playing the card of where he did just, like spit at Michael and say, you're evil. I'll stop at nothing until you're destroyed. You know, no, he actually, he tries to kind of pull a, uh, Stockholm syndrome, kind of a, you know, I'm your only friend and I can get you through this, which I think is infinitely more interesting, you know, just as a dramatic element. First I agree. off, I'm a bore with that. Yeah. And I'm at the same, so far. 
Yeah, and at the same time, even though yeah, you can we can split hairs, Mike, about what's going on with Michael and whether the emotion or lack of emotion that compels him to murder people could be described as rage or coldness. I think that's almost immaterial. Loomis raises the idea that Michael may on some level believe that he will be satisfied if he kills them all. Michael is Hmm. not just a complete like, well, I'm just working my way down a checklist. Any being is quote unquote human enough to be doing something in hopes that they will feel better about it or that they will have somehow solved some problem or filled some need within them. And all he is really doing, whether you agree with his verbiage or not, is simply saying that, look, you think that the end of all of this for you is that if you just murder a bunch of people, everyone ever connected to you, that somehow you will have won, and I'm telling you, you won't have. That Mm -hmm. will not make you happy. That will not have made whatever drives you go away. And I think that that's actually a perfectly valuable and logical psychological tactic to take to Michael. Okay. I, I, I think that I, I, I still won't grasp onto rage, but uh, yeah, per se, but uh, you know, just the overall kill, idea, kill uh, but, but the, <laughs> the, the kill overall it. idea of reaching out to some shred of humanity that may be left in his head. And also due to the fact that he was a psychiatrist for 15 years, that he's the one guy who, whose voice can actually penetrate the you know the the storm that's in Michael Byers' head. Well, this is where uh, I'm glad so, I listened such, to the such commentary. a way they can hear. Uh, I listened to the commentary today, and Danielle Harris asks the director why Michael never goes after Loomis, really, and the director says because he knows he can heal him, and I think hmm. that that is a very consistent concept that actually yeah does show up on the screen in this movie. Is that, yeah, that's the sort of, that's why Michael gives him the time of day. Is that Michael does have some feeling that if he listens to Loomis, there might be some way out of this. You know, that Uh, like, and I I think that that has to be there. You know, that, that circles back around to an earlier conversation we had on this podcast about the commonality between Michael Myers and Jason Voorhees is they're both wounded boys. Right. Emotionally right. wounded boys who can be cured. You can get them to stop murdering everybody if you just approach the lion and stroke its mane in just the right way. Right. Uh, they're, they're, they're simple in some ways. Michael, much less so than Jason. But you mm-hmm. could say that this is a very obvious trap that he's laying for Michael, that Michael buys into. And he's by no means as unsophisticated as Jason. But there is a childlike quality to Michael as well as Jason. I would say that's very much, very much underlined from almost moment one in uh, with Leatherface with Texas Chainsaw Massacre, where you know the first time we ever see that character murder somebody, like he has a temper tantrum and like flips out and cries and sits down and he's like, "What I do?" Well, none yeah. of these guys except for Freddie are like mm-hmm. a Machiavellian kind of a character, you know, like. Yeah. Most yeah. of them are arrested development cases in some way, you know, and yeah, they can yeah, have they, different degrees of sophistication. Well, yeah, but they, they I try to I introduce think... that in Nightmare Part Six, but it's a terrible movie, so it doesn't work. 
I think Michael's the most sophisticated of them, though. More than Freddy? Yes. I mean, again, I think because I think fundamentally Freddy is just like a demented serial killer. Michael, what intrigues me about this movie and the the in particular, what it, it almost I mean drives me crazy watching this is that they get it so right with the scene between again the what we get in the next scene at the house between Michael and Loomis when Loomis approaches him and is is it, what we sort of later realize is is really just trying to lure him in. But he's using something that he knows about him. He's using something of this connection that he's forged with him over this time. The the truly the shot when when you see Michael's hand loosen on the knife and Loomis says, "You don't need that. You don't need mm-hmm. like there's there's no there's there's nothing I think that compares to that moment of vulnerable humanity." Certainly, in any Friday the Thirteenth movie, past Part Four, um, and and nowhere in any of the Nightmare on Elm Street movies, the problem is that then they fuck it up by going way too far when Jamie crawls into the coffin, coffin, and and you know, and Michael takes off his mask and sheds a fucking tear. I'm gonna get started on that. The one thing of true value that Halloween offers this franchise is it similarly burns. Loomis and Michael Myers, both of them are scarred in very similar ways, both of them from the same incident. And so both of them are kind of freaks of nature uh, or wounded people within even, uh, you know, their own tribes, per se. Mm -hmm. You know, let's just say that. Uh, When we see a burned face, it could be either one of them. When we see a burned hand, it could be either one of them. And that's not something that Freddy Krueger has. There's no other burn victim character with whom he can commiserate. I did just watch uh, Dream Warriors the other day. Vic, as you said, like on some level, Michael is a more sophisticated character, not necessarily in that he understands pop culture and can make like he can impersonate, you know, Dick Cavett or Johnny Carson. How old are you, John? <laughs> no, that was in part three, man. And Aja Gabor. But, oh I mean, the God. point is is that, like, on one level, Freddy is, like, capable of pop cultural references. But as a character, he's much more shallow. And, yeah, the very fact that, that we're, we're dealing with, like, can you imagine, like, a, a, Fri- a, a, a Nightmare on Elm Street where, like, they're dealing with Freddy's pain and why he's a child molester and giving him some way out of it. And he's tempted by that. No, there's nothing like that. The sad thing is I can't imagine that movie. It's just much, much better than most of the Nightmare on Elm Street movies that actually got made. Yeah. That's the point. Yeah. That's the point is that they don't go for that. Yeah. Wait, wait, John, this is your chance. You can mention the woodsman. Well, I, I think that this is the one movie that actually approaches uh, Michael Myers' mental illness as an actual mental illness to some degree, whereas the other characters are just they're they're just crazy and they're evil and they're ugh, they're the son of a 
thousand maniacs or they're from hell or no one was giving any psychotherapy to Leatherface. They're, they're far more, I would say, folklorish in a way. And that's why they're simpler. Whereas this one is grounded. Uh, it's coming way more from Hitchcock. Uh, if there's any movie that would actually compare even tangentially, it would be the first Friday the 13th movie with Pamela. Absolutely, psychologically, where at least her character has like a degree of psychological depth that you can understand yeah. what's driving her. Let's say that there's a version, uh, we're in an alternate universe in which uh, they never had the genius stroke of genius to have uh, evil boy Jason leap out of the lake and grab the girl at the end of the first Friday the 13th movie and thereby establish him as the lead antagonist of the rest of those films. What if it was always just Pamela in the Friday the 13th movies? That's basically what we would have with those movies and Halloween. You know, I have a crazy idea. Wouldn't it be Mm. fun to watch a remake of Friday the 13th part one? Where like, I'd love to. Yeah. I'd love to. Yeah. yeah. You know, where it's where Pamela. It's, yeah, yeah. It's, it's Pamela. And yeah, absolutely. I, I think that there's definitely a lot more there. It's it's rich ground that would be really, really interesting. I, I absolutely 100% agree with that. Yeah. Let's, yeah. let's keep it big picture and wrap it up. And we'll actually not go beat by beat. I'm absolutely done with that, and I'll tell you why, because the the logic of the film starts to shudder apart, increasingly so as we go through. So it's like, I, I mean, there's no real reason to go beat by beat through the mysterious man attacking the jail cell or the scene where the dumb cop is in the room with Jamie and Michael is on his way up, because, uh, and, you know, because these scenes are logically, they're garbage. The first time I see the dumb cop, the thing that popped into my head and it's written down here is it's Roger Predactor, which is a Ace Ventura reference for anybody born before, uh, uh, after 1982. Anybody Roger Predactor? No, No, but I will say that I absolutely recognize this guy. Like he's a solid supporting actor. I could not put my finger on it, but I feel like this guy is an old friend. He's not a bad actor, but he's dealing with some really stupid fucking beats. Well, one of the moments that I absolutely love is after all the cops get called away because she has the vision or whatever. So she's alone. The cop is like, all right, we got to get the fuck out of here. And Loomis like pulls his gun. The one cop outside is getting his face smashed in on the on the uh, uh, steering wheel. And they're listening to it on the radio. And Loomis says, Michael Myers is outside. Are you sure you want to go? And it's it's, <laughs> it's one of the few moments when you see an actual human being grappling with the idea of what it actually means to say Michael Myers is outside. Right. Yeah, I really right, like right, it. Right, I mean, you yeah, can hear that dude yeah. suffer out there, too. It takes yeah. a long yeah. time it's for a, him to die this, over this walkie-talkie. It's, it's a horrific death scene, but what you what you really get is – this the, again, this this wonderful character actor's reaction of mm-hmm. Michael Myers is outside. 
oh my god, okay, I'm just going to barricade myself in the room. There, there's a lot of dumb shit going on with this entire sequence where, you know, the locking of the door, the unlocking of the door, the busting out of the window, la la, here comes Michael Myers. I, in terms of the actual beats, it's logically it's garbage. Uh, it, it's it, aiming for a uh, dramatic payoff that it doesn't quite earn. It's very interesting that this is truly a turning point for Loomis, where Loomis is actually putting a gun on a cop. He is taking it to I'll, another level. And I, I also, I will say that I both loathe and like the entire sequence in which Michael Myers is quote-unquote semi-captured with the weighted net and the tranquilizers and everything else, they finally treat this guy like the rabid animal that he is. And uh, the fact that it took Loomis and this this entire convoluted thing to make it happen, but it is like, I mean, ultimately, it's like the, these guys aren't God. I mean, it's basically just a dude with a knife. And if you, and even if he's indestructible, you know, you can still kind of fucking take him down physically. Uh, I, I think that the sequence is trying to create a scenario in which uh, Loomis can die on top of Michael Myers because mm-hmm. he's kind of clubbing him in the head with his two by four. And let me tell you, man, I mean, if we're going to take the, the movies that lead up to this film as uh, canon, Loomis should know that if he's pumped how many dozens of slugs into this man that like, Thudding him on the head with a two by four isn't going to do all that much, uh, but he does then almost comedically has a heart attack and collapses on top. <laughs> all right. Well, there's a couple things going on here. I mean, for one thing, this is the only time in these films that Loomis actually has a plan and it and it works to perfection. You know, That's very like, true. it is an interesting culmination in, of his role in the franchise that we realize that all of this is something that he has orchestrated and it goes exactly to plan for Loomis. Like he's uh, got Michael exactly where he wants him. That's and I true. think there's something very satisfying about that. And I, I think that there is something almost equally and differently satisfying with that sequence in the attic with Jamie and the coffin and, and the other, you know, the dead characters or anything else. Because again, we haven't really seen Something like that, yeah. In, since since the first film, yep. It five, you know, I mean, they were talking about coming back to you know basics and four. Five is a way more analogous film to the first film than the rest of the franchise. Uh, you know, where he's staging, he's staging a tableau. He wants a very special victim to see what he's all about. He stages these these other dead victims, uh, and he even pulls off his mask briefly in the same way that we see from the first movie. And Vic, I'm of two minds when it comes to that tier. Uh, I, I think that in some ways it's semi-sold by the rage-feeling bullshit that John is kind of touching on with Loomis. On the other hand, is it corny or is it pushing the envelope? I can't tell. Does it suck or does it really suck? I'm yep. being a dick and I know it. No. That tear that Michael sheds is very much like the character of Tina, where I can fully understand why people would hate it. I just kind of don't. One of the what? reasons this is a good movie and not a bad mm-hmm. movie at the end of the day mm-hmm. is that we have identified 
that you could say in some regards it's going down a checklist of what we might hate as fan service or derivativeness Mm -hmm. where this is actually a movie where, yeah, oh, yeah, we are tapping into X, Y, and Z from all these other movies, you know, almost you could say verbatim in some ways, but it doesn't Mm -hmm. feel that way. It doesn't feel like a crass recitation of the same tropes from the earlier films. Like it actually feels like it belongs. Yeah. I I take umbrage at the fact that for four movies, we describe this character as empty, as soulless, as cold. And then suddenly in five, he's supposed to be full of rage and la la la. And the scene and, and I like have expostulated before I call bullshit on that right up until the scene with Jamie, where we have him in this kind of this layer that he's created very carefully in the same way that we have seen from first. And we see him flip out and uh, get emotional and flip over shit and shed a tear and get emotional. And then suddenly I go, okay, in this one scene, now I buy the idea of rage from this character of any emotional expostulation from this character. So yeah. Okay. The, uh, that scene actually sells the rage quote unquote idea to me. So if you were that a, sense, nerdy, value. a nerdy super fan of this series at this point, like you would say either this is pandering to me or this is mm-hmm. actually really trying to not only pay off or do a lot of the things like I would, as a quintessential fan, want to see in a Halloween movie, but also sort Mm -hmm. of advancing the narrative and digging deeper into his psychology. Like, I think that that's Mm -hmm. actually a very admirable uh, goal that they're attempting to achieve. And uh, if we're going to say that uh, he is an angry child then what better way to, uh, to to demonstrate that than to bring a girl into his little room and show her all of his posters and toys yeah. and then and then have an emotional reaction when she rejects him. Well, she's very much the same age that he was uh, when his mm-hmm. journey began. And we see with I him think- compelling her to stab her her parental, her family figures – that on some level, consciously or unconsciously, he's trying to bring her along on into his journey. And I think that the idea of him being conflicted about whether or not, why is he after her? Is he simply after her just to snuff her out? And I think it's A, more interesting, vastly, that, that it's not that simple. And B, I think that we, we give a lot of reasons for why he, he wouldn't want merely that from her. He does a lot of chasing around of this character. Like she's his contemporary uh, psychologically. In that this yeah, is... it, it's funny because we can say that he has a deep connection with Loomis and a deep connection with Jamie. And Loomis, he repeatedly refuses to attack. Yeah. Whereas J- Jamie, he repeatedly attacks, 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 attacks. And I wonder if part of it isn't the blood relation. He's trying to erase a bloodline. Um, if he's struggling within between an urge to maintain the bloodline and an urge to erase it. And that's where that rage comes from. Well, and that's whereas, exactly what this movie is telling you. Cause that's what Loomis hmm. says is that Loomis okay. suggests, oh. <laughs> Loomis suggests okay. that, that Michael believes at this point that by killing X number of people who have X, and why relationships to him that he will feel better after. 
And he's saying, but you know that's not true. You know that if you do that, you will still want to kill people. Well, I am offering you a, po a possibility where you will no longer want to kill people. And Michael honestly says, well, that sounds pretty good to me. That's the more interesting part of all of it is that, and that's, that's why I struggle so much with that last scene is that to make Michael, to give him the right amount of humanity where he still remains scary to me is that shot when we see his hand loosen around the knife. That is exactly the right amount of, oh, my God, there actually is still something of that little boy. There is still something in him that wants to put the knife down, that wants to stop killing, that wants to let go of the rage. And that's why all of that dialogue and all of those things work is it sort of connects in that one moment. And it just feels like then when Jamie does it, and take off your mask and you're you're ugly like me which doesn't make a ton of sense <laughs> and then like this single i mean again like this single tear it's just it's like we did this thing we did this thing that was that was like this lovely perfect like we just hit all the right notes and then we hit the whole piano with a sledgehammer just in case you didn't get it. <laughs> that that tier is either a high point or a low point of the franchise, yeah. and it's it's there there are uh, arguments to be had either way. What what was your uh, reaction to the very weird and out of nowhere controversial ending with Michael Myers in a jail cell, like he's just any other dude who's been arrested for a DUI that weekend? <laughs> And then suddenly gets breaks out by he gets broken out by this this guy with a tattoo. I had I had two thoughts on this. Uh, mm -hmm. The first is, and especially watching it this most recent time, this dying on top of Michael like them sort of face to face. Again, I what I came away from this movie feeling as much as I love Danielle Harris's performance in it, I came away feeling like the relationship between Michael and Loomis was really the stronger, more interesting thing. Oh, yeah. And so this, this death, again, this idea that, that Donald Pleasance had created this arc for the character, that it was culminating in this scene, that Loomis was, even if he couldn't stop Michael, by God, he was going to die trying. And he literally dies trying face-to-face -face with Michael in his last breaths, uh, knowing that hopefully he helped to stop him. I watched it this afternoon and thought, shit, they should have ended the movie right there. They didn't. And so my uh, my snarky uh, second thought is that you'd think after Halloween 4 that the police department in Haddonfield would have better security. I saw something in Loomis's death moment that like really struck me. And I, I've watched it twice, and I, I believe it's legit. When he drops onto Michael and stares into his eyes... His eyes widen at the end as if he sees something in Michael's eyes mm. that horrifies even him. At wow. That point. Interesting. kind of blew me away. Like I was okay. like, it might've just been Pleasance's choice. I don't know, but I, I got it loud and clear. I've been thinking about what was that? What is that? That he, what new insight into Michael did he get in that final moment that, that even shocked and, and horrified Loomis? 
that, so. carry, that he carries with him to his grave. Exactly. That, that's fucking. That's some pretty tight shit, man. Exactly. I love that. Into his moment of death, the guy with the spurs uh, or the steel-toed boots, you know, doing his Terminator cop shop clear out, like about fifteen minutes after Michael was put into the cell in the first place, is ridiculous. It's a very contrived duis machina kind of a. Uh, way to get him out of of captivity. It's a very tacked on, open ended ending. That's just purely intended to be a cliffhanger. You can feel the machinery behind it, the thought process behind it. We need a, a something here that makes the audience go, "Whoa, right. dude!" And you know, and this was what they came up with. And it's both uh, the lamest way I, to put Michael on ice, like that he's like, yeah. "Oh, he's he's just." Now he's in jail and the lamest way yeah. to immediately free, free him. Like the two things back to back. It's, it's, yeah. it's really bad. I have a lot of respect for narrative daring. Let's roll the dice. Let's see if it works. And I think that this whole thing is horseshit and I'll tell you, and it plays as horseshit and it is horseshit because they made it up on set as they were doing it. Like there, there it is, is the epitome of, the bad version of J.J. Abrams storytelling in which it's like, let's make up some stuff and we'll figure out what it actually means later. I can say all these nice things about four and five and I can say, you know, how refreshing it was to watch them and like them more, but make no mistake. These are not objectively good movies. I mean, these are not like, Oh, well now it's in my top 100 or or something like that. Mm -hmm. No, these are very flawed films for various differing reasons. So like, I I think that it's really interesting the, the choices and the directions that they go, but yeah, objectively speaking, this is the kind of decision uh, to end your movie that, that keeps a, a film like this from, you know, really being in any kind of larger esteem. Yeah, uh, objectively speaking, it's still Halloween 5. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I still think that Tina is the most interesting final, uh, uh, quote-unquote final girl. I know she doesn't actually quite fit the bill for that, but I find her more interesting than Rachel, more interesting than any of the uh, Friday the 13th girls. I think what they do with her is more interesting. Her performance is fantastic. You put that together with Donald Pleasance, and I forgive most of the other mistakes in this movie. I actually think it's better than Halloween 4. I absolutely agree with that. I, you know, for a very long time, I consider these movies to be unwatchable trash. I, I could not even remember if I deigned to do so. And, you know, I, and, and the only reason I ever put my eyes on them was because I hung out with my weed dealer back in high school and he just to watch these things. And now that I have some life experience in filmmaking and, you know, horror and everything else, like now I've come to appreciate them. They're not perfect. They are flawed. They are the movies that they are, but I, I have come to go, you know, they're, they're fun to watch. I, I don't mind them. And there's some interesting and cool stuff. They're cool ideas. They're cool images. There's some good, I mean, like everyone is like clearly trying really hard to make it the best movie possible. This one is more tonally uneven than four. Yeah. But like yeah, I, yeah, part yeah. of the reason that I infamously in terms of this podcast, like wanted <laughs> to talk about this movie you know, long before it was appropriate when we were talking about four was just cause it like, it grabbed me, you know, like this, this yeah. movie is, 
is ballsy in a lot of ways, yeah. and it's conceptually interesting. You mentioned Tina again there, Vic. Did anyone else notice that she's wearing white pancake makeup on her face? No. No? You're no. kidding. You did not notice that. Nope. Like, she has a pallor that is clearly like just from the jawline up. And I was like, is that a goth, a proto-goth 1989 thing or what? I couldn't quite wrap my head around it, but she is wearing heavy, like pale white makeup in this movie. And it's, it's interesting, a little off-putting, but it just is very like specific and weird that, that they would make that choice. I think hair wardrobe and makeup had a very clear idea for this character that she would be kind of uh, an amalgam of of stuff that was going on at that time. So uh, she's got a little Madonna with the the lacy gloves. She's got a little goth. She's got, you know, so, you know, she's got a little this, a little that. So she's she's kind of like you know they just kind of dumped the '80s on her head. <laughs> there there there's a giant barrel that said '80s. They just kind of dumped it on her head, like uh like Gatorade on a winning coach. Exactly. Well, you- if there's one thing we all agree on is that Tina is awesome. So there you go. That's it, John. I mean, you you know that I love you, right, John? I would lay down in front of railroad tracks for you. But Wendy Kaplan, you would save from that train while the train ran over my head. Well, no, I'm I'm just I'm I'm stunned that like pancake makeup is like your final like closing thought on you're like, did you guys see the- <laughs> I'm not saying that's like you know, that it sums up the entire movie, but that has been on my mind for like four hours and I somehow never worked it in. <laughs> <laughs> I love you, John. I love you. Likewise, All right, guys. Likewise, buddy. Let's be done. Uh, let's as they off. say in the industry, adios! <laughs> <laughs>